Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we're on a constant journey with our listeners, walking and talking our way through history, and highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world one episode at a time. Come along for the journey. Leading by History. Welcome to another episode of the Leading by History podcast, and we are excited to be in our third season. It has been quite a ride. I've enjoyed it. I've loved every minute of it. From when my friends two seasons ago told me I needed to start a podcast, and I was like, man, do you realize how much work goes into a podcast? There's there's no way with all that I have going on. And so uh, now, Going into three seasons later, it just was a great decision. And the information that we've been able to record and have as part of intellectual posterity going forward, it's just monumental. There's so many key people that have played a role in the success of the podcast. All of my guests have just been fantastic. So in line with what we've been doing, we've got another fantastic guest that's going to be on with us today, Mr. Mima Neves who is going to be representing with us today on Leading by History. And I hope that I pronounced your name correctly, Jamima. You would think that I would I would know how to pronounce your last name. Uh, the people will find out soon how we know each other. Welcome to Leading by History. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And yes, you did pronounce my name correctly. Yes, wanted to make sure it has been quite some time. How do we know each other for for the listeners? Well, we attended the same undergraduate university, the great Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. Um, I was class of, ooh, 96. Mm, Okay. Okay, class of 96. Yes. And I came out one year after you in 97. Yeah. And, um, you know, you are the second Lincolnian that I have had on the show. Season two, we had Dr. Fatima Fanusi, who was on, and um, we we did a show on the series uh, Black Gods. And so, you know, Lincoln really produced a lot of heavy hitters, a lot of folk who've gone on to really do some good work in the world. And uh, as I was doing some research and, and looking at the impacts of colonialism, uh, on the world and, you know, looking at some of the, the connections of European powers to the mother continent. You know, I thought about uh, Cabo Verde or Cape Verde and, um, you know, and I said, you know what, I know someone from there and I'm wondering if she would be available to talk about this whole piece about change of, of guard in the world, political institutions and all of those kinds of things. And so, reached out to you uh, in order to get some insight because this is something that you've been doing for quite some time. So, Jamima, tell us a little bit about who you are. We know now where you went to undergrad, so we know why you're such, you know, a magnificent person because uh, Lincoln (laughs) breeds good people that go and do the work. But tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you were born and raised, um, your studies, 
what what took you along the path because we're going to talk today about the spreading of democracy around the world the democracy programming and the institutionalizing of democratic principles in non-democratic spaces and so we want to get a little bit of knowledge about you and where you're from and why our people uh, need to really be tuned in to, to listen to some of the things you share today. So go ahead. Thank you very much, Maseyahu. I appreciate this opportunity. Let's start at the beginning. You asked for my, I guess, origin story. <laughs> so here it is. I am of Cape Verdean descent. My mother and father are from the Cape Verde Islands, which is a country of nine islands off the coast of West Africa, and the population is less than half a million. So very, very small, small footprint on the continent. Um, I was actually born in Angola during a time of turmoil. Uh, it was at the time of um, the independent struggles on the continent, and we happened to be there um, around the height of the Angolan liberation fight. From there, had a short pause in Portugal before my family uh, migrated to the United States. And so I would say that uh, I came from a strong background of the classic immigrant story of people who came to the United States in order to find a better life and greater opportunities. My parents uh, come from very humble beginnings. Neither of them finished uh, elementary school. And so they really promoted education amongst myself and my two sisters and in general, cousins and aunts really strong push in our family, um, being first generation in this country. And so from there, um, I had a strong focus on Africa. And after attending Lincoln University, uh, earning a bachelor's in philosophy, because I thought with the mm-hmm. skill of thinking broadly, I can apply it anywhere. Um, I ended up earning my master's in African studies at The Ohio State University. So from there, I focus on African development work, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Yes, Ohio State. Um, I think that uh, Dr. San Kwame Jeffries is one of the professors uh, over there, and he was on our show in, in season two. A uh, really good school and a great African and African-American studies programs there. So, Jamima, if I can ask you what might seem a strange or personal question, what do you consider yourself ethnically or racially, you know, because that's something that I'm not too aware of as far as Cape Verdeans and whether they identify as African people. Is there more of an identification with Portuguese culture? Is there a unique culture in and of its own, you know, sort of like the people of of, um, Madagascar or, you know, other places like that, which are, you know, off of the coast of a central landmass, you know, where people have developed their own kinds of cultures. Like, tell me about that. How do Cape Verdeans identify? How do you identify with regard to the African diaspora? Sure, that's an excellent question. And it really needs to be taken into context. Um, I would say that people from my parents' generation do not automatically identify as African, um, given the colonialist um, history and upbringing, which always classified Cape Verde as well as the other four Lusophone African countries as extensions of the empire, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But with those of us who are in the diaspora now and of like my generation and the younger generation, we do know that Cape Verde is in Africa. It's very much an African country. The current government and previous governments in Cape Verde identify as Africa. 
so when it comes to filling out forms here in the U.S., I, I mark myself as black. I'm African-American. I've been here longer than I've been anywhere else, and this is my home. Mm. That Now, that in and of itself is another podcast that I plan to have in the future <laughs> with, with, uh, with some of the people from the, the group Eidos who have a very interesting view of, um, of the diaspora and African-Americans versus blacks from other places and locations. So that's, that's, that's really uh, interesting and important for you to share that and that type of identification. So you were raised up speaking uh, multiple languages, one language. Lingua Franca at home was um, Creole and Portuguese and English. Now, of course, the younger generation wants to fit in to American society as well. So my sisters and I really tried to speak English as much as we could, as did our parents who, you know, needed to also assimilate, find jobs and make their way in, in society. And so I would say pretty much trilingual, though at this point, I'm very rusty with my Creole and my Portuguese. I understand mm. it better than I speak it. Um, but yeah, it's a big okay. part of the culture. Yeah, I you know, I, I told you I remembered you teaching me a phrase in Portuguese some twenty years ago, you know, and uh <laughs> and, right. and and remembering that. So I think for me, you know, when I have guests on, you know, I told people in, in season two that I was I was taking a little bit more selfish route <laughs> for for the interviews um, in, in season one I sort of did what I what the public was, was saying they wanted to sort of hear what, you know, friends of mine and others were influencing, said, hey, you may want to do one on this or that. In season two, I really focused on things that I wanted to learn more about. And I think that that has been pretty successful. So I think that those who are uh, listeners to the program who support Leading by History, I think they have some of the same interests that I do. And I think they've enjoyed some of the uh, rabbit holes of history that I've I've crawled into. And so I wanted you to come on the show because, you know, number one, I think that you bring a world goggle to how we can see certain events and situations that take place uh, because you have traveled. I know we've talked prior and you said that your passport may not have the same amount of stamps as some of the other folks that you know but I mean, in looking at the places you've been and what you've done, I personally think you've extensively traveled. I know you've you far out traveled me. So I think that world lens and even coming from another land, you know, another country and to be able to have all of that as a part of, of what makes you you, I, I think that's a part of the work that you do. I think that's what was important for me in asking you to come on the show. I really want to delve deeper into your experiences and the things that you've seen in the world. So I know that in the very beginning, you worked in a certain capacity when you first got out of school. I think if I'm not mistaken that you got your degree in African studies from OSU and then you went into being like a, a program specialist with, you know, an institute that focused on Africa and American relations, right? Yeah. Dealing with like cultural change programming and things like that. Yeah. First time stepping out in, into the world of work that you do. And I saw that you were working with African activists and areas of conflict resolution, good governance, citizen uh, engagement and human rights. What was that work about? And how in the world does a person get into doing that? Like that seems pretty lofty to just be able to get into like being a program 
specialist for an institute that implements cross-cultural exchange programs for activists. Um, you know, it, it, that's just a lot of good work. So tell me about that. How'd you get into that and, and what were you doing? Sure, happy to talk about that. And actually, what I started doing post-grad is an extension of what I'm doing now, actually. And part of it is really about just showcasing and learning from other countries, other cultures, and other systems. And so that particular program is still an ongoing one sponsored by the U.S. State Department, and it's their international exchange program. And what that is about is about bringing practitioners from across the world, and in my case, I focus exclusively on African nations, to come and dialogue with their counterparts here in the U.S. Um, not only in Washington, D.C., but across the country, because as we know, there are regional differences in the U.S., you know, between the East Coast, Midwest, South, West Coast, etc. And it was a very eye-opening experience because we take a lot of things for granted living here in the U.S. in a certain amount of privilege. And to have the opportunity to meet with leaders in other countries who are making waves in their respective areas or professions, be it in the education sector, be it in conflict resolution and mediation, um, good governance. It's just an eye-opening opportunity to allow people to exchange with one another. Oftentimes, these groups were mixed. We would have people from different countries come together who have similar backgrounds but are working in different parts of the continent to also then build networks amongst themselves as well as with their counterparts here in the U.S. So that's extremely fulfilling. That was an entry-level position. There are so many opportunities like that, especially in Washington, D.C. And I sort of stumbled upon it because I think one thing that I didn't learn enough in college was the importance of networking. And mm -hmm. that's how a lot of these opportunities come about, right? Um, our traditional career services departments, or at least back in the day, I think had a very more narrow sense of what the opportunities are after the academy. And so it took a lot of pounding the pavement. I knew I wanted to work on issues related to the continent, but I wasn't quite sure in which, in which arena. So that opportunity was with a nonprofit organization, and it, it, it expanded my worldview. There's a lot of resources and support that come from uh, government institutions, but there are also private foundations as well as nonprofit or non-governmental organizations that work in this arena. There's humanitarian work. And so um, what I would say to any of your listeners who are still in school or who are actually teaching students is to help with expanding the horizons of possibilities that are out there. Whatever anyone's interested in doing on a domestic scale is available at the international level. So be it agriculture or education or women's rights or empowerment. There are so many opportunities to work in those arenas here in the U.S., but I think anyone's experience is more enriched if they have the opportunity to go abroad at some point to gain mm -hmm. greater perspective and understanding and to, again, build these bridges because we all have a lot more in common with each other than what we think and then what we've been taught to believe. And so having these opportunities for experts 
and respecting people in in terms of what they bring to the table. And that's really important as well, too. And, and those exchange programs are a way to foster those opportunities because they otherwise wouldn't occur organically. So mm-hmm. that's also an extension of where I'm focused now in terms of supporting people who are focused on good government, right? Good governance. And it's about giving people an opportunity to have their voices heard, um, participating in the political process. You know, it's more than just casting a ballot every four or five years, you know, wherever you are, um, but deeper engagement with leaders and that people recognize they are leaders in their own right. And so, again, a lot of this is suppressed. And so there are a lot of programs and opportunities to raise this awareness. And as much as we're doing this overseas, we could also use it here in this country as well, too. Well, you know, there's a lot there that I want to get into, pack a little bit of. We're going to take a brief break and we're going to come back and talk about setting up democracy and democratic programming in uh, in areas of conflict uh, around the world. We'll be right back. Hey, as a listener to the Leading by History podcast, we want to tell you about some exclusive opportunities available to you as a listener. If you go to patreon.com backslash leading by history today, you'll find that there are three tiers of support that will give you exclusive access to our program. We've got the official patron level, the all access tier, and the highest level, the VIP patron level of support. If you want to find out how you can have exclusive access and have impact on what we offer, go to patreon.com backslash leading by history today. Welcome back to the Leading by History podcast. In the first portion of the show, uh, we were speaking with Jamima Neves, who has an extensive experience with working with nations in Africa and around the world with regard to conflict resolution, uh, governance and citizen engagement, human rights, etc. And uh, for this part of the show, I want to unpack some of the things that she talked about here and uh, really get into this idea of democracy. And, and, and Jamima, I'm going to ask you some tough questions. So, <laughs> okay. so, you know, we come from an undergraduate school, uh, Lincoln University, that was the foundation for most of the African, West African countries that got their independence in the 1960s, et cetera. Yes. Um, yes. You know, we come out of a pan-African background uh, when it comes to how we were uh, raised up at Lincoln, that there's a world Africa, you know, Africa for the Africans at home and abroad, a Garvey-esque, Black nationalism. All of that was infused into what we were doing, you know, and what we were being taught in the philosophy of our university during that time. And we had the opportunity, no matter what people thought about then-President uh, Niara Sadakasa, she introduced us to world leaders, okay? And so I don't care what anyone has to say about this or that. It is because yep. of Nini that 
we were able to meet, um, you know, the grandchildren of Nandi Azikwe or that we were able to meet people like uh, Dick Gregory and a host of, of, of folk. And I think we also had uh, Rawlings. Didn't Rawlings come? He did. And there was a protest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Rawlings, there was this protest going on. And so, yeah. I mean, we, he put us in, in the mix with a lot of radical Pan-African Black nationalist agenda. I mean, one of our professors there was Jan Karu. I mean, Jamima, sometimes I want to just shake at a tear when I think about the people that I had access to that I was just too young and just too ignorant of knowing how important these people were for the development and understanding. I mean, Jan Carew, I mean, are you serious? You know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. the teachers of Ivan Van Sertima, like like you just like, and, and I was sitting with him, having casual conversations, sipping tea, like this is incredible. So, um, you know, we came out of an environment where we saw all African people around the world as related, and and, and we felt a responsibility to do good for for the benefit of all African people. And so, you know, because we came out of a more militant undergraduate school that really pushed that kind of thing, some people might think, some of my brothers that went on into, you know, the following of Kwame Ture and others, they would say that, you know, establishing democracy around the world is being a pawn of America around the world, that the world doesn't need democracy, the world needs scientific socialism, incrumentism, uh, various other isms and, and things native to the African continent. So why would you be pushing democratic principles and democracy around the world? What would you say in response to that? I told you I was going to come with some hard questions. What would you say in response to that? Because I see the benefit in the good in what you do, but I want to let you vocalize that. Go ahead. Sure, happy to do so. You know, that's a very interesting question. And I think the first step that we would take is how are we defining the term democracy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We have to have a common understanding of what that is. And democracy is more than just a system of government. And at its best, it's more than just a system of government. And we need to recognize that as a, a governing principle, it's about uh, accountability participation and real competition of ideas. And so a lot of those isms that you mentioned have um, crashed and failed around the world, right? And Mm. let's not say that democracy is not something that is not endemic to Africa already. And so it's a principle. Mm. And when we talk about how certain efforts are made to help countries in the democratization effort, I would say that it's about self-agency. You know, no one is shoving anything down anyone's throat, people are asking for this. Mm-hmm. If, your, if your listeners are familiar with the Afrobarometer survey, um, they're a highly, highly credible survey and public opinion polling firm that's based on the continent, affiliated with the University of Michigan out of Ghana, uh, the Center for Democratic Development. And every year they run surveys across the continent to gauge people's views of democracy. How is it working in their countries? Is it the best form of government? And without a shadow of a doubt, even as you look at the longitudinal studies that they show, most African citizens are in favor of democracy. However, they have high criticisms for leadership and how Mm. the democracy is rolling out in their countries, right? Because it goes back to 
who has the power and the access to the power, right? So in a lot of the work that we do, it's really about giving people the agency that's mostly enshrined in their own constitution. A lot of times we have a lot of beautiful constitutions around the world and on the continent that on paper are fantastic. They are fantastic, but however, in practice, they fall far short of the ideals because it limits who actually benefits from the full rights of as citizens. And what we find in in our line of work is the most marginalized of the marginalized are often women who we know on the continent are more than half the population in pretty much every nation on the continent. There is a massive youth bulge in Africa, right? Most of the populations are 40 and under, right? And so a a lot of people now don't even have, you know, or have lived through colonialism, right? It's in their rearview mirror at this point. Um, They're dealing with it now. They're dealing with not having access to technology, still not having access to good roads, having poor educational opportunities. The basic fundamental things that a lot of us take for granted are still not within reach of so many people. And it's due to bad leadership and not holding leaders accountable. And that goes back to what democracy does Um, when it works well. And again, it's not a perfect system, but it's the best working system at this point. And I would argue with anyone who can prove otherwise because mm. it's about human rights. It's about accountability when it works well. And again, people being involved and not just the elite, not just the landowners, not just those who have the keys to the central banks of these countries, right? It should be everyone who can speak up and have a seat at the table. And we know that those things don't happen on their own because oftentimes power concedes nothing without demand. And so Mm -hmm. it's about citizens mobilizing and organizing. And that's what's happening around the world now. I mean, people are getting fed up with how they are constantly like held back and not having opportunities that they should. And most times people aren't asking for things that are outside of the realm of possibility. It's just making sure that when the pieces of the pie go around, they're not just divvied up amongst the five top families in the country or et cetera. And so um, that's really what, what this is about. And it's leading from behind, right? It's giving people tools so that they can adapt and use in their own context. And right now, you know, it's, definitely not about pushing or ever pushing the U.S. model of democracy, right? There are many, many democracies around the world. If one were to go to Freedom House, uh, Freedom House's website, it's, it's an NGO that focuses on civil liberties and democracies, and it rates countries around the world on the democracy scale in terms of who's doing well and who isn't. There are African countries that are doing better than the United States. So um, it's really a mix. I think it's important to take things into context. And I think one of the lapses in the U.S. educational system, for instance, is that we don't teach enough civic education for students even at a young age. And so a lot of things that For instance, what I do or in my line of work and traveling around the world and working with civic activists, et cetera, about rights and principles and and how do you engage with your uh, member of parliament or your legislator or how do you monitor your national budget to make sure that the line items allocated in your community actually go to where they're supposed to. Um, These are things that we can and should be doing here as well in the U.S. And it's not something that's commonly taught and it should be. Mm. And see, I think from what you said that 
that really our listeners need to to pull away from this and take with them to chew on is the fact that democracy doesn't equal America. That democracy represents a set of principles of how life should be governed that addresses humanity and accountability for leadership. And if we define democracy in that way, right, the word demo and crusty, those the prefix and suffix there, meaning power and people, right? And so in all actuality, when we when we listen to some of our Pan-African brothers or pro-black or uh, black nationalist folks talk about power to the people, in all actuality, it's democracy that allows that to be actualized, right? Like what other form of government has stood the test of time in order to ensure that there is accountability for leadership? I mean, exactly. we can look at the American system of government and we can say, oh, well, you've got a president now that refuses to concede, you know, in light of overwhelming proof that he's lost this election. We've had all kinds of things take place throughout local and and state government that have been contrary to to right doing, have harmed people. There's this big divide between the rich and those who don't have. Some are more equal than others. But don't look at the failures of America as what democracy should be. Remember, democracy was created before there was an America. I mean, yep. when, the, when the Greek city-state of Athens was experimenting with a form of democracy called direct democracy, you know, that predates America by centuries and centuries. So, again, I, I think that's extremely important because people want to you know, attempt to colorize and racialize everything that seems to come out of America and label it imperialist or colonialist or things of that nature. But there's a lot more colonialism and imperialism in the minds of people and the terrible ways they treat each other than in the principle that hold together this form of government. And remember, even the framers of this government, they didn't come up with these ideas on their own, right? They said that there was a desire to form a more perfect union, meaning that what they had wasn't perfect already. So exactly. I, I love that you brought that out. So as we start coming down towards the end of our discussion, I want to talk about some of the work that you are currently doing. I mean, you, you're working now in Southern and Eastern uh, Africa and, and, and doing some work there in democratization. But, you know, what exactly does that look like? That's what I want you to walk us out on. It's like, what does it look like to help to establish democratic uh, principles and ideals in countries that are clearly not democratic? Um, how do the people there feel about the work that you're doing, the leadership there? Um, has it ever gotten pretty hairy where you felt like it wasn't safe? Great questions, Masayahu. Um, just to underscore your earlier point, um, and, and I can't emphasize this enough, um, you hit the nail on the head that in order for um, power to be legitimate, it must come from the people. And having a representative government where you have a voice is as close as, as one can get. Uh, I also wanted to go back to the comments about um, the U.S. And again, I would note that democracy is a path and you never quite get there. And so it's a roadmap to improve the way forward. And one thing that we really need to give the U.S. credit for is that despite 
some folks' best efforts. Otherwise, the institutions here are standing strong and firm with all of the uh, attacks on the U.S. democratic system. And so that also is a springboard to um, respond to your question in terms of what democracy strengthening work looks like um, on the continent. And it's really about strengthening institutions because if the checks and balances really work the way they should, and this is done in a transparent way so that people are aware, citizens are aware of what is transpiring amongst the three branches of government, and they are listened to and they have a voice in determining the direction of policy. That is really like the comfort zone of of where many would like to see their countries in. When I say that it's about leading from behind, at the end of the day, the citizens uh, and organizations that we work with um, in any given country are the ones who have the most at stake, right? And they're the ones who uh, determine the path forward in terms of what their priorities are. So in any given place, it could be perhaps having um, better legislation around extractive industries. In a lot of countries on the continent, they are the breadbasket of the world for natural resources, oil, petroleum, uh, cobalt, diamonds, et cetera. Um, The components that make up our cell phones, a lot of this comes from from the continent, but yet these materials are taken out of countries um, and not invested in the communities where the resources are extracted from. And so there, there's a lot going on with that. And people do want to be involved. They want to have a say. And they want to see the dividends of democracy, right? People want to see the fruits of their labor. Otherwise, what's the point? So that, I think, plays a big part in the approaches that we take as, as we work with people. And it's extremely encouraging because Folks are willing to put their money where their mouth is, and um, it takes a lot of courage to stand up to uh, the powers that be and to see young people, to see uh, women who um, prior to have been told that they shouldn't have ownership of land or seek education or have a seat at decision-making table. To see a lot of this um, now going by the wayside is extremely encouraging. And I think there are a lot of things that come out of what activists are doing on the continent that we can learn from here in the U.S. And so it's about keeping those bridges of connection strong, staying open-minded, and definitely doing more listening than speaking. Now, what about, again, how the work is received, especially by, you know, those who are in power and, and you know, has it ever, you know, seemed pretty dangerous or, or scary in those situations? Um, it, it can, and I would say it's more dangerous for our beneficiaries than it is for us per se, who, again, have, I would say, like, limited contact on the ground. With the bread and butter issues that we work with, Not so much. Um, I think when it comes to around elections, especially, uh, things can get extremely tense 
and and violent in quite a few countries because again not from citizens themselves but from politicians who take advantage of situations and use their extensive financial resources to for instance obtain um the services of unemployed youth to intimidate people from going out to polling stations or to vote in a certain way or to snatching ballot boxes or creating such a, an environment of uncertainty that people are afraid to leave their houses to go out and vote but then that goes to show you how powerful it is to exercise your rights and so in those cases People who are on the front line are the activists, the organizers who go out and encourage people to, to vote their conscience and not vote against their their own interests. And sometimes, you know, lives are lost. You know, in Nigeria, the 2007 elections, they had used, I guess, our equivalent of, of youth corps mm. to serve, serve as poll workers. And when election results weren't going the way some would have liked in the northern part of the country, I mean, they attacked these and killed, you know, a, a few hundred of these um, young people who are working for their country. And so it, it can't get as bad as that. It can. I'd say most cases it doesn't. But um, these, yeah, it, it still happens. It happens. Mm. So... Um, as we come down to the to the last minutes of the show, I mean, I, I could go on talking about this for some time. What would be your charge to our listeners, whether you're an educator, classroom teacher, college professor, historian, or whatever, or just somebody that's trying to get some knowledge about things that, you know, you don't hear about every day? What's your charge to the listeners concerning the work that you do, and what do you what do you call us to stand up for, to do, or, 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 or you know, what, what's the charge? Okay. I would say that one key thing would be, and I imagine that most of your listeners are historians um, or in that field. And so I think drawing the connection between the past and the present is really, really critical. And so just in terms of being able to connect what is on the ground now with what's happened in the past just gives greater insight into the cycles that we're we're dealing with. And so, for instance, if people are focused particularly on what's happening in Africa, staying in touch with news and being able to connect that with the past can give a sense of where you are moving forward. And so I think that's important is to stay tuned and to try to tie theory with practice. And I would note that politics is local. And so try to do what you can where you are and try to find like-minded people who don't live in your community or your country because it's surprising how much an exchange of ideas can really help build bridges and move things forward. Mm. So we want all of the listeners to think about the the foundation of what democracy really means, what it what it stands for, uh, what it represents for worlds that are colliding with modernity and colliding with newly forming feelings uh, for for equity and equality and and uh, increased liberation. And think about how how many instances you don't stand up for those principles on a daily basis right here at home. Think about how many instances in which you could have um, put into practice principles of democracy here or promoted it to those who, who may have been less aware and didn't do so. We need to really think about the lives that are on the line in doing this work 
around the world. We take it for granted here because America is a democratic nation, but there are places around the world that are in complete turmoil that are desiring and yearning for democratic processes and, and, and freedoms. And people are putting their lives on the line in order to accomplish the task. Uh, Jamima, it has been a pleasure having you with us today on the Leading by History podcast. We'll definitely keep in contact with you and, and maybe have you on the show in the future. Um, thank you so much for, for being transparent, sharing about your life and about the work that you do. We, we appreciate you greatly. Thank you so uh, much for this opportunity. Thank you. And from those of us at Leading by History, we say peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We enjoyed being with you today and we look forward to being with you again soon. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace.